Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. To me, it's a rule that I followed since I was a young filmmaker and I pushed all of the other young filmmakers that worked for me. I said, make everything far out. Go as far out as you can. Don't be conservative. Stretch the limit of everything you're doing. More narration, more script, more powerful music, less editing, less 4K, less concern with the technology, more concern with what is being emotionally effective to the audience and go that way. And then some will hate you, some won't hire you, but some will love you. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 130, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of documentary film and the Documentary Life podcast. Many years ago, when filmmaking was a brand new thing for me, and I'm talking narrative filmmaking, there was little to no documentary happening in my life at the time. I was working on my digital feature, a little scene, completely underfunded film called Cascades. I'd spent about a year writing the screenplay, then another year filming, and then a couple of more editing it. Again, there was zero budget, but of course, very high expectations, namely my own. Looking back now, I, I can see that while this film certainly had a lot of heart to it, a lot of good intentions, there was just no way that I was going to pull it off, at least not the way that I had maybe hoped I could. It was way too ambitious. The audio was at times shoddy. Camera coverage wasn't certainly always what it needed to be. And of course, after four years of my blood, sweat, and tears, approximately 12 people have seen the film. Looking back now, I, I can say that easily the biggest reason for its lack of success, and I'm defining success here both technically as well as financially, was the way in which I viewed filmmaking then, which was film as art and the film director as artist, or maybe more appropriately, artiste. You see, I still had this holdover from university that for a film to be true and authentic, a piece of art, if you will, then the director needed to be completely removed from the funding aspects of filmmaking and then the distribution aspects later on. That's what producers were for. Or was it executive producers? Or those people at Sundance that would surely pick up my film if it was good and then offer me a three-picture deal. Because of course, in this way, the artiste could be protected from silly financial forces that would negatively impact the artistic vision of the film. And then, of course, the artiste could just concentrate on the art. Now, that was my thinking back in the late 90s. And that kind of thinking is why my digital feature failed. And thankfully, I left that kind of naive thinking, that kind of ego behind me long ago. As any listener of the show knows, I now not only embrace the independent documentary filmmaker as entrepreneur, but I in fact consider this to be a critical part of doc filmmaking. In this day and age, you must become directly involved in not only the making of your film, but also the funding, the audience building, the marketing and promotions, and the distribution of your films. The more you empower yourself as an entrepreneur, the better your films and the better chance you have at making them for a living. 
And I've got an amazing doc industry guest coming up soon who has been doing this for over 50 years. And not surprisingly, he has a lot to say on the subject. But before we get to that, I'd like to offer up a little primer, if you will. Let's call this primer, Five Tips for Becoming a Documentary Filmmaking Entrepreneur. Number one, become authentic. Now more than ever, people have access to film equipment, whether it's with a DSLR or Blackmagic video camera or the phone in your pocket, everyone can make a film, or at least they have access to making a film. And they are in droves. So how to separate yourself from the pack? Well, authenticity will definitely help. Make the films you want to make, not what you think should be made, and not what you think the market wants you to make. Does this mean that you have to be in your films, or narrate your films, or in some way make the films about you? No, it does not. Of course you can, and many have done it to great success, like Werner Herzog or Michael Moore have done. My point is really just about making the films you want to make in the voice that you want to make them. This can be in the way in which a film is shot, a particular way in which you employ sound in your film, maybe a non-linear fashion of telling a story, maybe subjects that would not normally ever be seen on film, or maybe a new way to film interviews, and I'm thinking Errol Morse's Interatron here. Whatever the thing or things are, have something to say that is clearly the way in which only you might say them. Tell a story that only you might tell, or at least in only the way in which you might tell that story. Be authentic to yourself, and your film's authenticity will naturally happen, and your audiences will gravitate to that authenticity. Number two, build your audience. You have the power to engage directly with your future and present tense audience like never before. With social media, you can begin finding the people who have an interest in your film subjects matter. You can begin engaging with them as soon as you start an Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook account. You can find out who the experts are and who follows those experts. And you can begin dialoguing with them about why they are drawn to the subject matter. What and who these people are can be invaluable to you. You can directly understand the wants, desires, buying patterns, or whatever else in a way that marketing experts have worked at for years. You can run a crowdfund campaign to raise funds for your film. But of course, crowdfunding campaigns aren't just about funding your films, are they? They're also about building an audience for your films. Just by the sheer nature of casting a net out into the world as you run your campaign, you will be reeling in the types of people who will want to see your films, who will then spread the message to other like-minded individuals who will want to see your films. There are so many different ways now in which we can all be building out audiences for our films that at this point, it would just be negligent not to do. Number three, make more docs. How will anyone discover your work if you don't have much for them to discover? Get yourself more prolific and find the ubiquitous platforms to exhibit your work. Get out there and get making. And then make more. Look, I'm not suggesting that you make as much as you can at the risk of making amateurish work. Of course not. I'm not saying quantity over quality. But I am saying that if you want people to find you, you have to make it easy for them to do so. Get yourself seen up on Vimeo or Facebook. Create a channel on YouTube, and we'll really explore that in our next segment, by the way. Get your films into festivals. Make one-minute docs that you can get on social media. 
And if you want to increase the number of docs that can be made, find people to collaborate with. There are plenty of other filmmakers out there that would like to do the same thing. I say the more the merrier, right? Number four, shout about what you do. By now we've all heard about the power of manifestation. And if manifestation is not your thing or it's a bit too woo-woo for you, that's okay. But I'm sure you'll agree that more positive thinking coupled with actual positive movement is far more likely than not going to offer up good results for you. It's pretty simple math if you ask me. And getting doc films made or funded or seen is no different. When I first had the inkling of doing my first doc, Journey to Kathmandu, something I immediately started doing was telling people that I was a documentary filmmaker and that I was going to Nepal to shoot a doc. And I didn't stop. It started out with my family and friends, then people that I was working with, then waitstaff at restaurants, bartenders, people in the checkout stand at grocers, people at film events, fundraising events, granting organizations, individual donors, corporate sponsors. And the more people or organizations that I told about the film, the more the film became a part of me. The more that I made things happen on a monthly, weekly, daily basis that consistently moved me forward to making my doc about goats and goat herders in Nepal. A grant came in. We held fundraising cultural events and concerts. Many fundraising screenings to keep people up to date. I ran a Kickstarter campaign. I attended Nepalese organizational gatherings here in the States. Word got out about my little doc. And once the doc was made, there was an audience for it. Mind you, not a huge one, but certainly a dedicated one. I held screenings. I held live calls with other organizations who were hosting screening events with the film. We sold DVDs. We sold t-shirts. And all of this because I chose to believe that I was going to make this film and chose to let everyone I knew or would come to know that I was making this film called Journey to Kathmandu. So yeah, get out there and shout from the rooftops about the work that you're doing. It's the only way people are going to start hearing about it. And lastly, number five, YouTube. A bit along those lines is the use of YouTube. Perhaps you've heard of it. You know, the number two search engine in the world, owned by the number one search engine in the world, that YouTube. Now, admittedly, I have absolutely not taken advantage of this incredible platform myself. At least, not yet. I've uploaded videos very sporadically, and often without any sort of through line. Sure, there are a handful of TDL videos up there, some clips from my commercial work, teasers for doc films that I've worked on. But, like I said, there isn't much method to the madness, and that madness is far and few between. I don't really need to sit here and tell you of the power and potential of YouTube. I'll leave that up to my guest that's coming up shortly. But suffice to say, I've long heard about and seen the success stories of entrepreneurs filming and sharing their lives with the world, and not only getting their messages and films out into the world, but actually being able to make some income from it. With YouTube, you can grow audiences for your films. Connect and dialogue directly with your fans. You can be serious, you can be lighthearted, you can be controversial, or you can just have some fun. But the fact is, when used right, YouTube can be one of your biggest allies, one of the most powerful tools for you, DocLifer, to be using. So there you have it, my good friend. Five tips for becoming a documentary filmmaking entrepreneur.
Coming up next on the show is a man by the name of David Hoffman. Mr. Hoffman is a doc filmmaking entrepreneurial extraordinaire who has been at it for well over 50 years. In the last decade of those 50 years, he has been focusing heavily on the use of YouTube as the main platform for his documentaries. And it has become one of the most substantial revenues of his income. And he's here to tell you about his experiences with YouTube. And he's here to help you with it, Doc Lifer. So stick around, because it's all on the way, here on The Documentary Life. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com academy today, and we'll see you there. David Hoffman has been making documentaries for all types of audiences and for every available venue for more than 58 years. Hoffman has made 175 primetime PBS specials and series, six documentary-style feature programs, hundreds of network television commercials, dozens of corporate-sponsored documentary-style programs, and educational programs for children of all ages. He has won multiple Emmys, a Peabody Award, the Cannes Film Festival Critics Prize, top prize blue ribbons at festivals in Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Houston, and numerous international festivals. Nowadays, Hoffman spends his time creating videos for his YouTube channel, where he has 352,000 subscribers that tune in regularly to learn about Hoffman's life, his work, and words of wisdom for aspiring filmmakers. First and foremost, what a pleasure, David Hoffman. Welcome to The Documentary Life. Very excited to have you onto the program today. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely. From your early days, it seems like you saw yourself as someone who could make successful doc films your own way, your own style. I would say outside of conventional or accepted methods and wisdom. 
you even did this with your decision to move from being a small fish in a big pond in New York to becoming a much bigger fish in a smaller pond in Camden, Maine. Talk a little bit about that and, and that decision to move to Maine. And, um, and then talk a little bit about this idea of really your own style and doing things your own way as a doc filmmaker. You know, I'm saying this to you, and I know that everybody who's listening to this can't do what I did. Hmm. But if you do, if you take the risk of just your own sensibilities, not the system, not the current style, certainly not journalism, yuck, journalism. If you want to be a journalist, you're not a documentary filmmaker, Mm. in my view. If you're a documentary Mm. filmmaker, you're documenting your perception of something, not reality. That always fascinated me. Mm. There's no such thing as real. There's what I see as real, what I see. So I wanted to go my own way. At that particular time, 1974, Nixon had been elected and he was about to go. The 60s had died and the cities were a mess. Big drugs had taken over. There was a lot of violence. And there was this thing which your audience probably has heard about. Most of them haven't lived it. Go back to the land. (laughs) We went back to the land. We left the city. I'd always lived in the city. And there was this place, Camden, Maine, where I had some relatives. And I moved my whole company at that time, 10 of us, into little houses in the little town. And we got a plane that we could share in to get us out of there. There was no internet, of course. And we began to make movies. And I thought I was going to die. I mean, come on, who's going to hire a guy from Camden, Maine, to work in New York or L.A. or D.C.? And I got work. And how I got work was by presenting a very unique style. And it required... It required one thing, and it's the thing I still most believe in. Credible. Is it credible? Are you bullshitting? Are you selling? Are you a true believer? So many documentaries being made today are true believers. I know this is the truth. What I'm showing you is the truth. When Mm. we all know who make these films, you know, Chris, because you interview so many people so well, there's no such thing as truth. (laughs) There's my truth and your truth and his truth. And, um, so or, I did or Werner Herzog's The Ecstasy of Truth. <laughs> Boy, is that good. The Ecstasy yeah. of Truth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I admire Michael Moore enormously because mm. he's so talented. He's so funny. He's mm. so charming. And I won a, an award in his festival in Michigan. Yeah. And I met him. And what he says to me is, um, you know, you're a pretty good filmmaker. And I said, <laughs> Michael, are you telling the truth? He said, truth. I'm telling my truth. So he got it. The guys who speak or women who speak and talk about, I've been with the Peruvian Indians for five years and this is their story. Mm. It's like National Geographic. Can you believe National Geographic? I mean, my God, everything's always pretty and nice and the the climate change is wrecking things and the animals are so, it's yick. I could not do a National Geographic documentary and they wouldn't hire me. Right. Right, right. Well, let's explore this a little bit more, this idea of truth in documentary, um, truth in fiction in stage scenes. Of course, your first documentary feature, King Murray, which, oh man, I love this film, by the way, David. Absolutely love King Murray. It won the Cannes Film Festival. Oh yeah, I mean, it won the Cannes Film Festival in what, 1970, right? And 69, uh, it won the Film Festival in 69. Here's what's important. Yeah. The guys older than me were Ricky Leacock, Leacock, Penny Baker, and the Maisels. The Maisels said, cinema verite, we just show the truth. 
yeah. the truth of cinema. And I knew, and every other young filmmaker, because we were all young filmmakers at that time, knew that's baloney. You see, you got a camera, a guy with a huge boom, a wire. Not only a guy with a huge boom and a camera. Who's the cameraman? Is he really good looking? <laughs> Is he smoking a cigarette when he's shooting? Who's the sound man who's right up close to you? Does he smell? Yeah. By the 70s, is he black? By early 70s, is he a woman with big breasts? Is that affecting what's in front of the camera? They denied the whole thing. And uh, they were backed in that denial by Robert Flaherty's wife, the great Robert Flaherty's wife, who ran the Flaherty Film Festival. She yeah. believed in truth, only yeah. truth. Yeah. So David Hoffman, wise-ass New York filmmaker, is sitting in his office, and a guy comes in to sell me insurance, life insurance, and he says, um, you know, he's incredible. I have never seen so yeah. much energy. Yeah. And I said, hey, uh, you deserve a movie. He said, hey, could I get a card that has my name, producer, so I could meet women? I said, sure you can. I'll make you one. He said, well, this Friday, I'm going to Las Vegas on a junket. A junket? He said, yeah, we take all the people who buy a lot of insurance, and we take them to Las Vegas, and everything's free. All things being paid for by Vegas. So I'm, I, I actually, I, go, I did not realize that it happened that quickly. Like this, days within later, days, you were doing five this. Five days later, it's me, it's my sound man partner, and it's an actress I hired from New York to accompany Murray King from Long Island. And anyway, the film gets made, and yeah. the press asked me, of course, "Is this the truth?" And yeah. I said, "I called it staged reality. Yeah. Is it the bottom line truth? Yes. This yeah. is Murray King." Yeah. You can't act it. Right. But is every scene perfectly truthful? No, we staged scenes. We picked people. We engaged with people that was yeah. set up. We yeah, yeah, knew yeah. certain things would happen. I did that my whole career, including yeah. in my um, Emmy Award winning Eisenstadt Germany, right. which was a classic on public television and ran all over the world, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Alfred Eisenstadt is a pain in the ass, old life magazine photographer who's perf a perfectionist and wonderful. And I know he's going to get pissed off if we set up a scene he doesn't like. So, of course, uh -oh. I set up a scene in a yeah. German museum oh, yeah. where the second he starts to roll, the cop comes over and puts the hand in front of his camera. It's a setup. I mean, I made it that way. And then I watch what happens. In the case of Murray King, when it was over, the New York Times blasted it in six columns. Yeah. The... Daily Worker, which was a communist newspaper at that time, said David Hoffman is a dirty Jew. The Daily News, the woman's name was Pauline Kale, the greatest um, oh, yeah. uh, reviewer of that day, uh, oh, said yeah. David Hoffman should be thrown out of America. Oh, yeah, yeah, speech. yeah. I'm sure she couldn't stand it. <laughs> and, and Wall Street Journal, um, forgot his name, he gave it the 10 best films of the year with the Maisel's Brothers films, Salesman. So both films won yeah. this high prize by Wall Street Journal. And I send it to Khan. I've never been outside the United States. And Khan invites me to come over. And it's the year of Easy Rider. Well, nobody's going to beat Easy Rider. Yeah. And we entered the Critics Prize, which is the French critics, very French, decide on their own what's the best film at the festival. They don't let the public decide or the attendees decide or the committee. They don't like that at all. So we win. They loved Murray, your. They loved your truth. They loved it. They loved my truth. They saw it as an honest statement of America, which yeah. they were questioning at the time of the Vietnam <laughs> yeah, War. And uh, I was on my way to Hollywood. I had gotten the uh, producer of Sting offered me a six-picture deal in Hollywood. David, make six more of these crazy movies you made. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Anthony Quinn said, David, I'm going to do a new version of um, Viva Zapata. And I'd like you to be my director. So, yeah. Chris, off I go to Hollywood. I'm a real New York guy. I'm an East Coast guy. I'm a blue collar guy. Wow. I'm out with the people, wow. ordinary citizens. And off I go to Hollywood. And I meet everybody. <laughs> And I come back after six weeks, scared out of my mind. Uh, First of all, there were drugs I had never seen. Oh, the real boy. use of cocaine in a way that I didn't know. It wasn't <laughs> in my culture. Two, there was money. Huge amounts of oh, money. Amounts the more of money, money you yeah. had, it impressed everybody. Yeah. And then there were girls. Right, and right. it's true that the couch existed. And I couldn't, I didn't know why women were approaching me. It made me real uncomfortable. It's part oh, of the man. reason I moved to Maine. To be in your so films. <laughs> King Murray was a classic film. It's still used in schools. Oh, I'm I recently sure. spoke yeah. Yeah, in, outside of Boston at a, at a college where they invited me to speak because they were looking at what is documentary truth and at oh, yeah. Cinema Verite, oh, yeah. the oh, history yeah. of Cinema Verite. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because I actually find – I actually find some crossover and commonality with what you and the Mel's brothers were doing, quite frankly. I mean, it's easy to you it's easy to argue that you guys were at odds with one another in terms of your style and approach to doc filming, but I find a lot of commonality in some ways. Um yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I, I think I think it's great. I think, I think that's great. interesting what you're saying. Yeah. I think yeah. I think this. And you know, I've been waiting to be on your show because it's the premier show right now for my my colleagues. Huh. And you're doing a really good job of raising questions that I think help. And here's my question. Mm. The Maisel's brothers had top of the line at that time. They were paid the most money oh, to yeah. do television commercials. Oh, yeah. Everybody knew them. They were in all the festivals. They didn't engage the others around them. And I resented that. Mm. I was never number one guy. Mm. But I always believed, bring my colleagues. If you look at my colleagues today, mm. dozens of people who worked in my company, oh, yeah. have their own companies, are top of the line. I mean, Francis Kenny, he was my assistant cameraman. Yeah. He became, he's head of the American cinematographers right yeah. now. He's CEO. Yeah. And <laughs> Kirk Wolfinger uh, at Lone Wolf up in Maine, he's done yeah. 15 Novas, 25 Novas, History Channel. So I believe that, that we older people need to bring the younger people into their own because documentary doesn't really have any competition. I've never come into a place where the guy says, you know, we have $500,000 for this documentary and three of you, we're going to give one of you the prize. Right. right. It's either you or it's the other guy based on yeah. a whole bunch of principles. Right. So I right. believe in being generous. The Maisels were not generous. They well, did not share yeah. their yeah. power. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting. Well, you thankfully have been and have been doing it for decades at this point. And it, it seems, quite frankly, it seems like a great segue into what you've been doing now for the past five, six, however many years, which is you are continuing to reach to a young audience and you're doing it in this spectacular fashion called YouTube. And so... I mean, one of my first questions that I would have for someone like yourself with such prestige, with so many years doing doc films, uh, is why YouTube? How did you come to YouTube, David? When and how did you realize this is where I'm going to start presenting my doc films? Hey, it's about money. I mean, we all know in this profession that without money, you can't make a movie. Hmm. And you're either rich, and X percentage of us are, they have the money to make a doc unfunded, the rest of us are scrounging around, spending yeah. 75 to 80% of our time right. looking for the money. Yeah. Also, the industry. Think about the industry. Hmm. It's changing at the time when I 
found myself in this situation. Yeah. It's leaving the documentary as an independent filmmaker brings the documentary to either PBS or the new Discovery Channel. Right. Certainly the networks were not possible for independent folks like us. Right. And it's changing to how many can you make? A dozen? How fast can you make them? Mm. Three months each? Mm. Knock them out. Knock them out. Budgets, on the other hand, except for Netflix yeah. and uh, HBO and Amazon, aren't rising. They're dropping. Right. So I'm making less and less and less money. I can't support my team. I had 80 people in my company in Camden, Maine. Incredible. Yeah. We were a wonderful documentary film company, but I couldn't support it. Mm. So I left and I went to Silicon Valley, sent by AT&T, one of my clients for commercials. Yeah. And I began to work in startups. And what I found in uh -huh. startups was I was a vice president of communications. And yeah. what I found was wonderful freedom, great opportunity, real people, lots of money. Money's everywhere. And it's I'm just rolling right along. And I forgot about making movies. I'm making startup things. And wow. the startups are wonderful until the bubble, the bubble of yeah. 2000, when guys like me, lots of us, were not. I was right out. there with you, man. <laughs> you, were, you don't look old enough, but okay. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I, was, was, I was there in San Francisco. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lost everything that I had. I had wow. nothing. I had not enough money to pay my mortgage, a new wife, lived at the top of the mountain in Santa Cruz. Mm. Life was going to make my own movies again, gone. What do I do? Yeah. Well, there's this thing called eBay, mm. just kicking up. Yeah. And there's this thing called YouTube. Yeah. And I'm a consultant to a lot of startups. And some of the startups became big, like Google. I was right. a consultant to Google in 1998 <laughs> and 99. <laughs> so Google um, tells me about YouTube. And as soon as YouTube launched, pretty much, David Hoffman was doing well. Why? Because I made little advertisements in Google AdWords to sell my videos, my to go get to my videos that fit what the audience cared about. I used a standard practice that all of my fellow colleagues know to be true, wow. which is it's not what you do, it's what they see. And what they yeah. see isn't what you do, what they see is what interests them. So you better damn well know who your audience is, know your audience and create a thing that interests that audience. Yeah. Okay, so YouTube begins and I'm doing really well. So Google hires me as a consultant for YouTube to figure out how can I do teach AdWords to people for YouTube. So all of a sudden I'm in YouTube and I'm growing and it's doing okay. I make a little bit of money like we all do. But I also notice, you know what? I'm getting old. And that means the world that could hire me to make a documentary is gonna, including Silicon Valley, which has an age prejudice. Right. If you're white haired, you're already getting old. I mean, there's hardly any white hairs in Google. If you go into Google, you got to yeah. really look to yeah. find a white hair. Yeah. It's rare. Um, right. In any case, I'm stuck. I still got to make a living. I have a second wife for 20 years and some children and heavy mortgages out here, as you know. But Chris and I stuck. And I say to myself, well, maybe I could do it on YouTube. I mean, PewDiePie, he's making five, six million a year. He's not doing documentaries. I wonder if that's possible. So I start to put my documentary clips up, just clips from the documentaries with very good titling and uh -huh. very good description. And one in 50 takes off. It, within, within days, it has 100,000 views. Huh, what's doing that? 
the algorithm. You have all heard of the algorithm. I hate the algorithm. We all hate the algorithm. It's constantly changing. It's unbelievably tricky. Yeah. But I start to figure out the algorithm. I notice my audience is 25 to 45. 75% of my audience is 25 to 45. They like history. They want to understand their parents and their grandparents. They want to know something. Mm, what do they want to know? They want to know my clip, which is from the earliest ones from the 1950s, the latest ones to 2010, with my explanation of it. Hmm. So I create a style. David Hoffman introduces his own clips. Right. And I find people like David Hoffman. Not everybody, but people like David Hoffman. They, they actually like the clip better because I presented it by telling right. what oh, to yeah. look for, what you oh, didn't yeah. see, yeah. what's behind the scenes. And I built my base just for your interest. There's not a documentary filmmaker on YouTube anywhere near my number of subscribers or views. Not, certainly not that I've seen. Yeah. And there aren't any. I mean, National Geographic has a lot of views, but right. eh, that's not true. If you look right. at Michael Moore, if you look at Ken Burns, yeah. wonderful documentary filmmakers, they, they don't hold a candle to me. Right. I got 102 million views. 102 million views. I never got that out of PBS. Plus, when, when the show was over, as you people know, or many of you know, Show runs, it gets reviews here, St. Louis Press, blah, 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 blah. And the next day it's gone. Yeah. And some other guy's movie's there. Right. I hated that. I spent at that time a year, now four months, making a documentary one hour long or a feature doc, and it's yeah. gone. You got the film festivals. We could talk about that. I got a lot of strong feelings about that. And you got YouTube, this incredible global search system. Right. What does it find? It finds not the people who want to see David Hoffman. Nobody knows my name. It finds the people who want to see what to do during COVID. So I have four videos now on what to do, how to work at home, uh, a perception I have about America. Right. And who's watching it? 63% not from the USA. That tells you a lot. This is global. That search system is picking up interested parties that I could never have found. Never I am reached. totally yeah. in support of what YouTube has created for wow. in, for all filmmakers, whether or not you're working in the system or outside it. So if I'm a doc filmmaker and I want to start a YouTube channel, say I'm listening to this program and I get inspired and I look at David Hoffman's YouTube channel and I think, you know what? I want to do this. I should be doing this. Give us some hard, um, well, I'll, I'll say, give us a few tips that somebody outside of this uh, realm of creating a channel would not necessarily know that you yourself would know because of your experience in Silicon Valley, because of your experience working with AdWords and as a doc filmmaker. What are some things that we should know that we wouldn't normally easily find out when we set out to make our channel? Okay, so you've asked me the question, I want to create a channel. Yeah. That's some of the people who are your audience and others may already have one and mm. others may not, maybe not know why they should want to create a channel. But think about it this way. A channel isn't, isn't really what you care about. The channel is just the mechanism that holds the videos. Nobody nobody goes to my channel okay. to speak of. What they really want is what they want. What do they want to see? So you have three choices, let's say. Choice number one, have you done any work that you have the right to use on YouTube? Let's hope you do. I fortunately, knock on whatever, I mean, you have a ton. when I was younger, all my films that I made, I said to the people, you have the rights and I have the right to use it for my own publicity, yeah. including Nova. 
that gave me a chance to have a whole lot of footage that I can use for my own publicity. Well, the YouTube channel is for yeah. my own publicity. Yeah. Also think of the viewer as they want either to see the clip or they want to hear you. Yeah. Now, if you're under 40, maybe you're good, maybe you're not. If you're between 40 and 60, you probably have stuff to say, mm. stuff you've seen, mm. personal insights. And what is the key to YouTube? Credibility and authenticity. Yeah. I'm an authentic being, an authentic, real, not public relations, not advertising, not 4K. Who gives a shit about 4K <laughs> on my cell phone? Who gives a shit about two cameras? You know, Chris, this horrible editing. It's this, and then you look at this, and the guy's looking <laughs> sideways. Why do that? What is the point? We're looking at it like this on my cell phone. I don't know if I want to watch you or not. So for the, all those folks who want to start, start by evaluating you. Yeah. What is the reason you want to do this? Yeah. Do you want to make money? Do you want to build a brand? Do you want to state your opinion for family, for mm. future? Mm. Do you want to tell the world something? Do you have content that helps, but it's not necessary. Mm. And I would say, lastly, uh, are you willing to take what YouTube requires, which is not only trolls, but people are going to hit you between the eyes. I actually, like most of my colleagues who have the time, mm. I read every comment, 1,500 wow. comments a day I'm getting. Every single one's being read by me. That's about two hours a day, removed if you're a Nazi. Removed if you're truly hateful. I don't want that on my channel. It's yeah. my channel, not yeah. yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people really don't like that. Um, <laughs> otherwise, do I want to comment on what you've said? Yeah. Do I want to like it, which is the heart? And I heart just about everybody who says anything, whether yeah. or not I agree with them, if I appreciate it. Since the uh, COVID, since the pandemic, I've been doing something, never thought it would fly. That's one of the great things about YouTube. You quickly see what works and doesn't. Yeah, so yeah right. I put up a photograph from my collection. I have a lot of photographs I've collected all my life from old family albums yeah. that I purchased. And I put up a photograph. It gets 3,000 people in one day and lots of comments about memory. So I start putting up a photograph every day, which I've been doing now for oh. two months. And I put a commentary of my own life related to something in the photo, although it's not my family. And you should see that go. The comments, the love people are having, people are making it through the pandemic <laughs> based on my photos that they love, cherish, remember, they yeah, remember yeah. the grandma. Yeah. People want to share. And I want to tell you one other thing, Yeah. because I think it's very important. In this fractured society that we live in, I'm of the Amer I'm one of the Americans who wants the partisan divide to go away. Yeah. I want to feel like a nation again, like we have in the past and like I think we can again. Mm. And I'm pitching that. So my channel and my subscribers know that I feel that way. Oh. So if you're a person filled with hate, yeah. you're going to come up with hate and I'm going to remove you. Yeah. If you're a person who likes God, this is a channel and not everything is political. My yeah. God, I've put up, you know, someone eating a string bean and someone else sees it as political. Wants to attack Trump or wants to attack Biden. I got a, a clip on a guy with Alzheimer's being tested from an old documentary I made in the 19, mid-1990s. Yeah. And uh, people come up and they say, that must be Joe Biden. They think that's funny, right? I just remove it. This is not a political piece and I'm not going to let you do that. Yeah. As a result, yeah. I have a group of a community, a growing community that really cares they care about each other. Mm. They want the Protestant divide to just go away. 
You don't have to agree with me about everything. You hunt, and I hate hunting. You're still on my side when it comes to the country. You know, you, you're, you're on ahead. you're onto something there too, and that obviously is something that we can equate very well with doc filmmakers is this idea of of building a community for your work, right, and fostering that right. community, and they keep and at some point. You know, that community comes back for your content. They come back for your films. And that is obviously something you have done in spades with with your YouTube channel. Very true. But what you're saying is really important. Hmm. That's right. What I found was the network, cable, uh, the few foundations that give money, all together equal this amount of work for the rest of us, for all the people, enormous amount of people that hear you. And yeah. now see you. Uh, but what I'm interested in is a community. What about 50,000 people that really want to see my work and are willing to pay for it on Patreon, yeah. which a lot do. I have a yeah. strong Patreon community and a uh, growing YouTube community. And YouTube algorithm is liking me. So I get pretty good money on my ads. Yeah. yeah. Put it all together. I'm making a living, guys. You're making Without ever being in a network, on a cable, searching the money. Every day I look at how much money I've made and it pays for my California life. Just about. I also get work from startups who want to do the same thing I've done on YouTube of and on course. occasion filmmakers. There are filmmakers yeah. with enough money to say, hey, David, I'm going to hire you to help me to, to, to get myself right on YouTube. David, I- I'm curious because I know that my listeners are thinking this right now. And I have to ask you, it's up to you, how you, of course, how you answer this. But dying to know what ki- well, we're talking about making money here via your YouTube channel. Can you give us some kind of ballpark? Now, obviously, you're an exception to the rule in many ways. You're going to be the exception rule to most people doing this. But I'm dying to know. Can you give us some kind of ballpark? Like, like, what are we talking here? What do you when you check in on YouTube? What do you get in a day or a week or a month? <laughs> I'll share that. So let's look at where I am today. On a good average day yeah. in April of 2020, mm-hmm. I make between $350 a night and $600 a night from YouTube. Yeah, That's coming every night, I see it. And that's based on views and a yeah. whole lot of other stuff. The CPM, how much YouTube is willing to pay per view, how much it's willing right. to charge a sponsor. I have uh, videos that are $3 CPM, and I have videos that are $30 CPM. Yeah. I'd much rather have those be used, yeah. but the CPM changes all the time, and the advertising changes all the time. So you are not in total control of this, but it's a nightly gamble. You push the button and at night I look. I then have startups that hire me yeah. and I get on average um, between $5,000 a month and $10,000 a month from my worker, the people I work for. Yeah. Or I help their channel or yeah. I do an interview for them as yeah. you can do too. Yeah. Uh, and then I have um, t-shirts via Teespring, which is a YouTube spinoff. Yeah, you have merchandise. That's I right. Merch, I merch. Merch, yeah. is, merch is hilarious. I've yeah, made yeah. my own merch. You can make your own merch. Yeah. And I make about $200 a month. Wow. And then because of my video clips, yeah. which still sell on Amazon as DVDs and streaming, yeah, that's right. I make about three or $400 a month. Wow. Put all that together and this independent filmmaker, me, yeah. like so many of you are or would like to be, is struggling to do good and I'm doing it. I'm pulling it off. I very much appreciate the candor with which you speak and sharing that information. It's important information. A lot of people guard that sort of thing and you didn't. And I which is doesn't surprise me by the way. That's the beauty of the David Hoffman, I think. And I want one. I want 100 of me. 
I want oh, you to yeah, be right, right. <laughs> I'm, this is not a competition we're in, really. I guarantee you, if, yeah. if I see something you you made that I like and I recommend it on my channel, I'm yeah. real happy if people spend more time on YouTube looking at your thing too. When it gets to be so bad that no one has the time to look at YouTube, well, yeah. maybe we'll be competitive, but it's nothing like that right now. Right, right. So, so obviously, outside of somebody, you know, paying for your consultation services. What, where is a place that someone like myself or obviously any of my listeners or anybody seeing this on, on your, on your YouTube channel, where is a place that we can go to at least get some kind of cursory knowledge of how the YouTube algorithms are working in any way? How can we start to arm ourselves with that knowledge? Yeah, certainly nobody's teaching it. Yeah. If you watch what's out there, nobody is teaching it. The guys mm. teaching it are effectively marketing guys. Yes. And that's a very different look than our look. Our yeah. look is yeah. Yeah. what drives somebody to want to see your video? A, what interests them at the second that they're searching? Mm. What are they searching? What are they searching? How many people are searching a documentary filmmaker? Eh, some. Mm. How many people are searching depression? Lots. What if my movie helps depression? I have one that does. Uh, People feel less depressed when they watch yeah. it. It's a yeah. movie about an astronaut's experience in space that I made in 1979 that ran for 25 years at the Air and Space Museum wow. and then was gone. You know, an old 16 millimeter doc, 10 minutes long, called a one reeler, we used to call it. And uh, so now I have an audience. The audience are people who feel bad and want to feel better. That's yeah. how you have to think about this. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. build. What does the audience want at the moment they're searching? Then secondarily, this is so interesting. What do they see on the right-hand side of the screen suggested by the algorithm that works out to be what you really want to see? Well, mm. X number, let's just say 5% of my views, people say, Your alg the algorithm brought me here, I don't know why. Okay, it got wrong. 95% say, the algorithm brought me here and I love it. Uh. My BB King concert film, six minutes long, which yeah, is yeah. my most popular video. I yeah. think it's got 14 million views, um, is being carried forward by another video about BB King, which doesn't have as many views, but everybody who searches that other video, I forgot what it's called. It's one of his songs. I see. She wants to see my video, which is called BB yeah. King said this was his best performance. Wow. That's my title. Wow. Fortunately he did. <laughs> and when you click on it, I got like 99% of the people watch the whole thing. That also tells you something. Yes. Where do people cut off? That's a wonderful aspect of the YouTube algorithm. Yeah. It's showing viewers, it's showing makers like us, creators. Yeah. Where did people sign off now? Where did they leave? Let's say I've made something on cancer, breast cancer. Yeah. 95% of the views drop off in the first minute. I didn't want them. I wanted the 5%. Mm -hmm. 5% watch the whole one hour film down to the last second. Uh -huh. uh. I found my audience. Wow. At 5%. It's unless you want a viral video, and very few of us get viral, and I can't figure viral out. The videos yeah. of mine that have gone viral are never the ones I would have predicted. <laughs> and ones I think are just brilliant. My yeah. God, everybody will like this. Oh, yeah. Don't oh, go yeah. viral, and that's up yeah. to the algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Kind of to broaden in on that, like the 95% that checked out in the first, you know, how minute or what have you, and the 5% that watched it the entire way through. As you're as you're saying is incredibly incredibly valuable to us, but yes. then what is that next step, David? What are you doing for that five percent? How are you reaching out to them, keeping them engaged with you and your work? 
using the full resources of YouTube, creating more clips aimed directly at them, watching the algorithm and, and analytics to decide which of the keywords and which other movies that I have never seen are drawing people to me. So I'm trying to always update my words, not so much my titling. YouTube does not like it when you change the title. Right. So spend time on the title. Spend yeah. time on the title. Yeah. Description, full, you should read my descriptions. They're four paragraphs and five paragraphs long. Wow. Yeah, Why? Yeah, the yeah. algorithm is picking up words and the people who are reading it and commenting, I know are my audience. So I am on this learning curve better than, what's the name, Chris, of the entity that tracks television audiences? I forgot. Oh, uh, the, the Nielsen ratings? Nielsen's. Yeah. They know less than I know because my audience is writing me. And I'm combining keywords and titling and what are the things they've seen and how long have they watched? And over time, I could tell you if I had a sponsor, I could say that sponsor, I got 150,000 ex Navy guys and some women, but mostly guys. I know that. I know that audience. I know they're going to watch my movie Navy. So if you want to reach the Navy guys retired, I'm a guy who could reach them for you. Certainly in banjo picking. I know a lot about banjo picking from my (laughs) clips and i've got 1770 clips so i'm tracking a lot of things to learn it's so much fun though i want to tell you if you got if you got the time or Mm -hmm. willing to put the time in yeah you're gonna love it it's fun wow wow so so incredibly powerful these days uh, in particular for, for our audience, independent doc filmmakers, right? To empower yourself with, look, it's one thing to be the artist, right? And, and it used to be this way. I was this way 30 years ago. Okay, maybe 25 years ago, where I felt like, okay, I just want to be a filmmaker. I'm the artist. This is what I do. Somebody else will produce my work for me. Somebody else will sell and market my work for me. I just need to concentrate on the art. And I quickly realized how how absurd that thinking is. And in some ways, now more than ever. But the beauty of that is, as you're suggesting throughout really most of this conversation, which is we have a lot more power than we realize. And we have to embrace the power that we have to market, to build our own, our, uh, our audiences and connect with them. Certainly, if we want to sustain ourselves as doc, film, doc filmmakers. To me... It's a rule that I followed since I was a young filmmaker and I pushed all of the other young filmmakers that work for me. I said, make everything far out. Go as far out as you can. Don't be conservative. Stretch the limit of everything you're doing. More narration, more script, more Mm. powerful music, Mm. less editing, less 4K, less concerned with the technology, more concerned with what is being emotionally effective to the audience. Yeah. And go that way. And then oh, some will hate you, some won't hire you, but some will love you. And oh, and I'm the people sure that, that love you will really love you. Love you. And, I'm, and you're right. Um, we all have to be business people. It's unfortunate. Let's be honest for a minute. Making documentaries is wonderful. Yeah. What a profession. What a wonderful way to make any kind of living. Yeah. It's yeah. just wonderful. You're shooting stuff. You're editing stuff. You're yeah. writing script. There's Meeting music people. involved. Yeah. Creativity all around. And yeah. what does the fiction film have? A wonderful script and some very egomaniacal but spectacular looking <laughs> actors yeah, and yeah. a director who has a vision. Yeah. But when you go in the editing room, you're cutting takes. Take tight shot. Take right. <laughs> what we do is we create an idea. Yeah. 
set up how we're going to do it, begin to do it. And the second we begin, it's changing. Yeah. It's not going exactly the way we want. Oh, we're adjusting yeah. constantly, thrilling. Oh, now yeah. we get in the editing room. We know we have four great scenes and some yeah. other stuff we got to make it to great scenes. Yeah. But we don't have a movie. Yeah. What's yeah. fun in the editing room? I'm fascinated by how stuff comes together i see what i did wrong when i'm in the editing room i don't know others do this but when i'm in the editing room now i attack the director but the director's me look at that idiot he missed that scene why did he not ask that question well i'm talking to myself yeah the editor mindset and the writer mindset so hard to be a writer yeah of script you you know and i'm sure a good part of it runs us you know what i believe all of us need to do this and i do this and you should do it too your audience which is know what you're good at. What I'm not good at, I better find somebody who's really good at that. I mean, I met a doc one time with Steven Spielberg when he was creating Close Encounters of the Third Time Kind. And he told me, David, there are about, I think he said 900 scenes. And I have every one of those scenes in my head. I don't know why he said. But if somebody asks me, should the tank be in the left of frame or the right of frame? And which position should it be? And I know exactly, I go into my player, I play yeah. the scene yeah. and I tell them, yeah. I don't have that skill. I know I don't have that skill. That is not me. My skill is, what is the person not saying that they've been waiting all their life to say? You're very That's good at that. You're very good at that. I am. Yes. I am. It's yes. a sixth sense. And I know that I'm good at it. Yeah. And so anybody who hired me would be wise to hire, hire David to interview that person because he's going to yeah. get some peculiar <laughs> stuff you never would have expected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. David, I could very easily talk with you for hours and hours and hours. And maybe in the future at some point, if because we're up in Portland, Oregon now. If I come down to Santa Cruz at some point, I've got some friends down there. Uh, it would be great to meet you in person. And then maybe we can continue the conversation. Well, I would say to you, Chris, that yeah. I'm ready. And I hope you're ready when the questions come in from your fans. <laughs> the people who listen to you, pass them my way and let's Let's try a couple of YouTube clips, you know? Just YouTube clips, you and I, answering whatever you or your people want to know more about. I love it. I love it. David Hoffman, thank you so much for being on The Documentary Life. Just a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. Me too. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.